Bismillah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So here we are on a new article. The Silent Theology of Islamic Art. Silent Theology of Islamic Art. And um, I would attempt to say the author's name, but that's the author's name right here. I think I will probably massacre it if I try to. Uh, I really like this article when I read it the first time. Hopefully I will like it again when I read it this time. Uh, so we're going to go piece by piece. It's I think there's some really amazing points in here for consideration. So we're just going to go piece by piece and uh, see where it takes us, inshallah. So, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. قال المؤلف حفظه الله تعالى ونفن الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين أمين. The silent theology of Islamic art. To many, Islamic art can speak more profoundly and clearly than even the written word. Is it wiser then for Muslims to show, not to tell? So this is his opening question. Is the reward for Ihsan anything other than Ihsan? God has inscribed beauty upon all things, and beauty is the splendor of the true. First from the Qur'an, second from the Hadith, third from Plato. Fourth quote before he begins by Titus Burkhart. Just as a mental form, such as a dogma or a doctrine, can be an adequate, albeit limited, reflection of a divine truth, so a sensible form can retrace a truth or a reality which transcends both the plane of sensible forms and the plane of thought. Burkhardt is not the uh, easiest author to read. Rahimullah. But very profound. So, let's work through it. Let's work through it. Bismillah. If asked to introduce Islam to an audience unfamiliar with the religion or civilization, I would not necessarily recommend a translation of the Qur'an, nor a book of Islamic law, theology, or philosophy, nor one of the many popular books purporting to introduce Islam to the West. Rather, I would recommend listening to a beautiful, untranslated recitation of the Qur'an in an Arabic maqam, melodic mode, or contemplating an illuminated Ottoman manuscript of the holy book in Thuluth or Kufic calligraphy, or marveling at Fas's Qarawiyin, Isfahan's Sheikh Lutfullah, or Cairo's Ibn Tulun mosques, or listening to the music of the poetry of Hafiz. Amir Khusro or Ibn Farid. So these are uh, civilizational pieces. We talked, I think, one of these sessions recently about cultural production. Might have even been the last section, the session or the one before it, about cultural production. So this article, I think, is a um, reasonable continuation of that conversation. These masterpieces of Islamic civilization communicate the beauty and truth of its revelation with a profound directness simply unmatched by articles or books about Islam. One of the many curious aspects of contemporary times provides proof. Despite the dissemination of vir virulent propaganda against Islam in the West, many people from Western societies queue for hours to admire the architecture of the Alhambra in Spain and the Taj Mahal in India as well as exhibitions of Islamic calligraphy and miniature paintings, and to attend sold-out concerts of traditional Islamic music. This is due to another paradox. 
These most tangible and outward manifestations of the Islamic tradition represent its most subtle, inward, and essential realities. Hence, it seems it is better to show than to tell. So what he's getting at here is that actually great art of various forms has an essence to it that is even more direct and more profound than a verbal explanation you know and he'll he's going to develop this more you can see kind of how he's beginning to get the ball rolling to many the silent theology of islamic art can speak more profoundly and clearly than the most dazzling treaties and its beauty can be more evident and persuasive than the strongest argument the Qur'an was not revealed as a set of syllogisms or prosaic rational proofs, which doesn't mean those aren't in there, but as a recitation of unmatched linguistic beauty, filled with symbols, stories, metaphors, and poetic phrasing. Indeed, its formal beauty inspired many of the earliest conversions of, to Islam. Before the, before the first books of fiqh, Islamic law, or kalam, theology, appeared, the first generations of Muslims had developed masterpieces of Islamic architecture, such as the Mosque of Qarawin in Tunisia and uh, Qairouan in Tunisia and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, an unprecedented art of calligraphy and an entire new literary tradition. But although the Islamic arts are essential and important to the Islamic tradition, as are Islamic law and theology, they, along with the remarkable aesthetic the Islamic civilization developed over the centuries, sadly have been neglected in recent times. While this is a significant loss for all of humanity, it is particularly tragic for Muslims. As the Hadith says, God is beautiful and he loves beauty. So indifference to beauty is tantamount to indifference to the divine. Uh, I think what he's hinting at here is really important. Um, in the tradition, art, and calligraphy and architecture and these type of things were central to the civilization of the Muslims and it seems in the modern kind of like experience uh, they've been neglected these things have been neglected oftentimes under kind of like a Spartan understanding or an understanding that is anti-cultural um, in many ways you know Especially in the American Muslim community, this idea of kind of like divorcing oneself from their their own heritage was very popular at some point, you know, um, and is very wrong. Islam lived, uh, Islam as a as a lived religion was in all of these places, and some cultural practices are are correct and some of them are incorrect. But many of the correct cultural practices were things that brought life to the experience of religion and some of those things were art architecture songs poetry and uh, without that things become very dry and we lose an appreciation for that which is beautiful but allah is beautiful and allah loves beauty and if we lose an appreciation then for what is beautiful we lose more than just I mean, we lose a lot in the first place because we don't. We're not. You can't have a civilization like that. If you don't have a civilization, you know, good luck really attracting people to what you have. But on top of that, we just uh, we lose a taste for anything. 
So the way we dress, the way we behave, the way we serve food, the way we host people, the way we interact with people, the language that we use, all of these things are part of that. And all of these things get lost in the, um, in the throes of this whole thing. So now he begins, making the invisible world visible. Making the invisible world visible. Um, this is going to be one of the main kind of like themes that's talked about. Um, trying to move that. Okay. Look at something very quickly. All right. So making the invisible world visible. In the Islamic tradition, the sense of beauty and excellence, at once aesthetic, ethical, intellectual, and spiritual. Hmm. Hmm. The sense of beauty and excellence at once aesthetic, ethical, intellectual, and spiritual. That's a heavy statement. Is encapsulated by the untranslatable Quranic term Ihsan. The classic definition of Ihsan comes from the hadith of Gabriel, wherein the Prophet describes it as to worship God as if you see him. For if you do not see him, he sees you. Most simply, the Islamic arts cultivate ihsan because the patterns on traditional prayer carpets, the geometric designs and calligraphy ornamenting mosques and Islamic homes, as well as the architecture of these homes, mosques, and madrasas help us to worship God as if we see Him. Through these displays of beauty, for God is beautiful and loves beauty. This as if, ka'anna in Arabic, Seeing occurs through imagination, khayal, uh, a term that has a technical definition in Islamic discourses distinct from its everyday meaning in English. So uh, this is an imagination, different type of imagination. But this art, all of this art is part of pushing us towards ihsan. It's helping, what is the title here? Making the vis invisible world visible. In the writings of Ibn Arabi and other Sufi thinkers, instead of representing something imaginary or unreal, imagination, khayal, is a creative and perceptual faculty that clothes pure meanings or ideas and spiritual realities in sensory forms and also perceives the meanings represented in these sensible forms. It is the faculty responsible for true dreams and visionary experiences and their interpretations. As when the Prophet ﷺ saw milk in a dream and understood it to be the sensible form of the supersensible reality of knowledge. So the idea here is that there are concepts, suprasensible concepts. And they exist in the world of khayal. And then they manifest themselves in things around us. So those things around us represent ideas. They're not imaginary things, but they're ideas. So knowledge is represented by this milk in a dream. Um, many other things, many other things. Imagination allows us to make the invisible world visible and to trace visible forms back to their invisible meanings. Thus, imagination is a barzakh, a liminal reality separating two realities, but also participating in them, between the visible and invisible worlds. So you have this invisible world and you have the visible world, and in between them you have the barzakh. You have a world that exists between them, but kind of connects them at the same time. It's like a bridge. Uh, between the visible and invisible worlds. This is the imagination. 
between the worlds of matter and spirit and between sensory forms and intelligible meanings. Indeed, for many Sufi theorists, I think it will become more clear as we continue going. So I'll, I won't belabor the point much. Indeed, for many Sufi theorists, everything other than, the, other than the divine essence is imagination and is thus a kind of dream that must be interpreted. Ibn Arabi writes, Know that you yourself are an imagination and everything that you perceive and say to yourself, this is not me, is also an imagination. So that the whole world of existence is imagination within imagination. Just as our dreams represent or manifest different aspects of our individual consciousness, the dream of everything other than God, Allah, reflects and represents different aspects of the aspectless divine unity. While it is impossible to directly contemplate the divine because of its absolute unity, in order to contemplate something there must be both a subject and an object of contemplation, which would violate pure unity. The dream is composed of signs, ayat, and symbols that manifest and allow us to contemplate, meditate upon, and see aspects of the invisible divine. This is why the Qur'an is full of verses, also called ayat, encouraging us to contemplate the signs of creation, including ourselves. According to Abu al-Atahiyah's famous lines, In everything there is a sign that indicates that he is one. وَفِي كُلِّ شَيْءٍ لَهُ آيَةٌ تَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ الْوَاحِدُ The Qur'an states even more explicitly in Surah Fusilat, We will show them our signs, سَنُرِيهِمْ آيَاتِنَا فِي الْآفَاقِ وَفِي أَنفُسِهِمْ حَتَّى يَتَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُ الْحَقِّ we will show them our signs on the horizons and in themselves until it becomes clear to them that this is the truth. Um, don't get too much lost in the words here. The idea here is that the only thing that is truly real is Allah. We are real, but in the metaphorical sense, or not even, I don't know if metaphorical is the right word, but we have beginnings, we have ends, we have every moment that we are in existence, we are given imdad, uh, we are given a continuation of our existence by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So really it is Allah who exists. And uh, everything else is uh, a pointer to his existence subhanahu wa ta'ala. Since it is through imagination that the signs of creation come into existence, it is through imagination that we can trace them back to their origins and meanings, and that we can interpret and understand them by recognizing the aspects of the divine they manifest. Okay, so signs in creation, they're in existence. And, or they're there. And it is through our imagination that we take them back to their origin. The signs are around us. We use this imagination, again, in this context usage, khayal, to take us back to the source of those things. Islamic arts play an important role by bringing the basic elements of our surroundings, such as light, shade, space, time, color, sound, scent, and silence, back to their geometric archetypal realities, their malakut in Quranic terms, which are more easily integrated into the divine unity one reason Islamic civilization and its arts are so focused on geometry. In other words, Islamic arts make things metaphysically transparent. 
They allow us to perceive the light of God in and through them, as if they were stained glass windows. It is through imagination, khayal, that the Islamic arts render the invisible divine visible. And it is through imagination that we can perceive the mysteries of transcendent divine unity imminent in these sensory forms. So the art, in the way that it's done, is... I mean, there's different forms, obviously, to it, but the diversity of the art is meant to bring us back to the unicity of the one. And so, for example, you take like, take calligraphy as an example. Islamic calligraphy wasn't haphazard. It's not free form. You know, there's a particular way that you write the script. And the script and the different letters and the way that they move, there's proportions between the pieces. And those proportions between the pieces provide some level of order to the multiplicity. If you bring them back, all of them, like when they're teaching calligraphy, all of them, they're going to go back to like a single dot. It's a single dot. And that single from that single dot comes a plentitude of multiplicity, and that multiplicity is given order by the structure of the method of writing the calligraphy. But it all, go, it all goes back to the one. Geometry is very similar. The geometry that's used to um, decorate Islamic architecture um, is multiple, but its multiplicity goes back to particular points, particular central designs, so on and so forth. So... So the diversity of it is always bringing it back to the oneness of its origin. And in that, it's kind of like pushing us through the khayal to recognize the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagination is often contrasted with reason, aql, in its limited meaning. Where imagination is synthetic, reason is analytic. Where imagination is both and, reason is either or. Where imagination draws connections and analogies, reason separates and draws distinctions. As William Chittick explains. Chittick also is not always easy to read. Imagination understands in modes foreign to reason. As an intermediary reality standing between spirit and body, it perceives abstract ideas and spiritual beings in embodied form. Since it itself is neither one nor the other, it is intrinsically ambiguous and multivalent. And it can grasp the self-disclosure of God, which is He, not He. Reason demands to know the exact relationships in the context of either or. But imagination perceives that self-disclosure can never be known with precision, since it manifests the unknown essence. Mm. I hope this is starting to come together. Part of what this is saying kind of reminds me of um, paraphrasing a statement that I've seen from Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Hafizullah, along the lines of theology is the least uh, theology is the most sane way to talk about God, or like the, the, the least insane way to talk about God, I forget the exact quote, but the idea is basically we're going to use theology Right and reason and so on and so forth. Allah gave us these capacities and faculties. We're going to describe Allah as existent. We're going to describe Allah as everlasting, without beginning, without end, without similarity. All of this kind of stuff. And at the same time, we're going to recognize that 
whatever description we use is not the reality. Uh, that to not be able to fully comprehend is full comprehension, uh, is actual comprehension. So, because we recognize that Allah is beyond, not even beyond, but He is He is Allah. So it's like similar to like when we say Alhamdulillah. They say one of the wisdoms with Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen starting the Quran is that someone who reads Bismillah Rahman and Rahim and truly understands it, the first thing they're gonna to want to do is praise Allah. But there's but they also recognize that no matter how I praise Allah, I cannot praise him in a way that is befitting him. So the best that I can do is to just use what he gave me, which is Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. So there's a there's a there's there's a recognition, and there's a non-recognition, right? So um, this is kind of like the the paradox of it. This is also part of why Allah is witnessed with the heart. We believe in Allah with the mind, but the relationship with Allah is the realm of the heart. It's not so defined. It's not so, you know, like put your thumb on it and control it. It doesn't work that way. Um, the theoretical, conceptual belief in God, you can do that. You know, we believe God is one and this is why and so on and so forth. But to really know God is a, a step deeper. And that step that's deeper relates to this imagination. And it's more of like a, a being. It's more of a being, you know. It's like you're, you're experiencing it. You're not know, knowing it in the same way. You know it in a deeper way, actually, through the experience. In the schema, it is imagination, not reason, that is perfectly equipped to encounter the ambiguities of manifest multiplicity and perceive the unity therein. It is imagination that can trace seemingly contradictory statements and phenomena back to the common origin that unites them without erasing their distinctiveness on the level of sensory forms. The imaginal faculty can both represent and perceive the same truth or reality in a tree, a geometric pattern, a work of calligraphy, or verses of poetry, despite their outward differences. So they'll have outward differences, but they'll take the, the faculty, the imaginal faculty will take them back to the same point, without erasing their differences. Thus, it is no wonder that the rise of extreme sectarianism and mutual misunderstanding across the Muslim world has coincided with the decline in the appreciation and production of the Islamic arts. Both trends are the result of a widespread atrophy of the imaginal faculty and a consequent lack of familiarity with the inner dimensions of the Islamic tradition. Okay, so now this is moving to the flip side. Like we said in Aqidah sometimes, you see like Imam al-Dardir in his Kharida, the illustrious pearl. He'll give you the text on Aqidah. Then at the end of the text, it's on Tasawwuf. So the, the beginning of it is on belief, and the end of it is on spirituality. And there's a recognition in that, that in, in belief, I will lay down what it is that I believe. And then in spirituality, I go to the other side of the same coin. And my relationship with God, these are two sides of the coin. But if you neglect one side, then it causes problems. 
Ibn Arabi and Ghazali and many of the other great scholars of Islam have argued that reason and imagination must work together to correctly understand and interpret the signs of God, both in his books and the books of the cosmos and the human soul. This is clearly illustrated in one of the most profoundly paradoxical verses of the Qur'an. There is nothing like unto him, yet he is the hearing, the seeing. There is nothing like unto him, yet he is the hearing, the seeing. The first part of the verse apparently declares God's incomparability and transcendence, and according to Ibn Arabi is addressed to our reason, while the second half of the verse declares God's likeness and imminence. We also see and hear, and is addressed to our imagination. It is only by understanding both halves of the verse, by seeing with two eyes, both reason and imagination, that we can come to know God through His signs. So these faculties, they have to work together. And we see that in the verse that this is like probably one of the most commonly re, re, um, referenced verses when it comes to who is God. This is the author, by the way, talking about his book, or talking about the article. Left to its own devices, reason can deduce that God must be above and distinct from everything we perceive. But it is unable to perceive the presence of the divine in phenomena, except in an abstract causative sense, or state anything positive about the nature of God. It is only through poetic prophetic revelations and reports, and through using the imaginal faculty to contemplate God's signs, that we can understand and perceive the positive attributes of the divine. Uh, if God were simply the necessary being or the first cause of the proofs of theology or philosophy, people wouldn't love him any more than they love the Big Bang. Hmm. Hmm. Right. It's more personal than that. It's not this impersonal first cause, you know. In other words, religious forms must always contain truth and presence. Without presence, their truth becomes abstract and uninspiring, like a half-remembered fact from middle school geography, while without truth, their presence becomes vapid and meaningless. This is really interesting, actually, because I think that this is part of, even in like one of the things that we've been talking about a lot in terms of Islamic studies, and the way that Islam was taught and passed from generation to generation, it cannot be only theory, this subject and that subject and so on and so forth which would be in here the truth but it must also contain the element of suhbah of good companionship with people of uh, observance because that gives the presence you know like the dawah is not just dawah is not just to like give someone a pamphlet dawah is to be the pamphlet in the person's life to be present with them, to spend time with them, to connect with them. And I think that one of our challenges is that we have a profound disconnectedness from the people. And those who care about these things often are very distant from the people. And in their distance from the people, there's no presence. So the, the truth is there, but it's abstract and uninspiring. Whereas the truth of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
is not abstract and it's not uninspiring. They see him, them. They visit him and they pray with him and they eat with him and they make dua with him and they go to battle with him and they travel with him, them. And so there's a presence in the truth. So these things come together and this is again the uh, rational and the um, the reason side and the imaginative faculty side. So you need the ilm, but you also need the poetry and you need the songs and you need love and, and being together. In other words, uh, I already said that. The twofold miracle of the Islamic arts is that they make the divine truth and the truths of its revelation present and tangible to us while imbuing our tangible surroundings with the beauty of divine truth. In a certain sense, Jalal, divine majesty and rigor, corresponds to the pole of truth, while Jamal, divine beauty, corresponds to that of presence. Neither can exist without the other, but it is the pole of beauty and presence that inspires love that force which moves everything in the cosmos, including our souls, both from and back toward their divine origin and end. I think this paragraph is really important. Even when uh, we think about the Shahada, we think about the Shahada as Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammadan, Muhammadan Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. There is truth and there is presence. There is Jalal and there is Jamal. Both of them, of course, you know, contain both. But really the Prophet... So sometimes people will say, but why do you guys put so much emphasis on the Prophet? Why can't it just be about Allah? Well, of course it can be about Allah. But putting emphasis on the Prophet is a closer, more tangible presence for most people because he was a human being. Uh, and the most and then the, what we can say is that he was a human being and that he was the best of all of God's creation love beauty and Islamic art in the Qur'an, the Islamic tradition in general and our everyday experience, beauty, whether ihsan or jamal, is always connected to love and love to beauty. God is beautiful and He loves beauty, the hadith says. And the Qur'an repeatedly says, God loves the beautiful doers, al-muhsinun, or al-muhsinin, depending on the verse. Islamic thinkers, as different as al-Ghazali and Ibn Sina, even defined love as an inclination or attachment to what is pleasing, perfect, and or beautiful. So love is connected to beauty and vice versa. Look at this, look at this, Alhambra in Spain. I mean, look at the detail. And the multiplicity, but the unity. It, it's like you're drawn in by the beauty. And when once you're drawn in by it, it's like you're put in front of the the awe of the divine so you you feel an attraction because of the beauty and you also feel awe at the same time that's islamic art it's giving you that jalal and jamal 
As such, the beauty of Islamic art attracts love, both human and divine. Whether praying in or even just strolling through the beautiful mosques of Istanbul or Isfahan, one cannot help but feel love and beloved, regardless of the circumstances outside. This gentle presence of beauty and love causes the sakina, the deep peace engendered by the awareness of the presence of God, that is one of the most characteristic features of the architecture of all traditional mosques. The harmony of their geometry makes the barzakh, sacred presence, of the space tangible, helping to bring our souls into balance. The harmony of the space. Uh, brings us in balance. Turning to the Islam to the literary arts, the Islamic civilization's obsession with love can be found in verses of love poetry, scattered in Islamic treatises of logic, law, geometry, theology, and philosophy. Until recently, the culture of love permeated nearly all of the traditional Islamic literary genres and understandings of reality. For scientists, philosophers such as Ibn Sina, love was quite literally the force that moved everything in the cosmos, from rocks to angels. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful Moreover, love is essential to the cultivation of ihsan And the closely related concept of ikhlas All of these things are tied to love right? People make it seem like love doesn't matter How are you going to have all these things? How are you going to have ihsan? How are you going to have ikhlas? <coughs> without love Without beauty as a hadith says, none of you truly believes until God and His Messenger are more beloved to Him than anything else. Without this selfless love, our pious actions and worship are motivated either by pretentious arrogance, riya, which the Prophet ﷺ called the lesser or hidden shirk, idolatry, setting up a partner alongside God, or by a selfish desire for rewards, or to escape from punishment in this life or the next, instead of by loving God for His own sake and loving others for His sake as well. So without that love, you end up in one of these places. Some of them are worse than others. Riyah is a big deal. Shirk is a big deal. To do things only for the punish, for punishment or reward. Technically, you could do that, but it's not optimal. It, it takes the love out of it And the love is what animates it And motivates it Either way this limits our love And enslaves us to our own selves and desires Have you seen him who has taken his desire To be his God? Whichever of those is going on They're limiting our love And they're setting up our desires Alongside it God has led him astray This one who takes his desire to be his own God God has led him astray but those who believe are more intense in love for God. Ashaddu hubban lillah. Walladhina amanu ashaddu hubban lillah. That they're more intense in their love for Allah than anything else. To paraphrase a verse by the poet Hafiz, apart from lovers, all I see is self-righteous hypocrisy. This is an amazing line. Apart from lovers, all I see is self-righteous hypocrisy. And if you think about it, it's pretty amazing. There's a level of it. If the person is not just in love with Allah and the Prophet there's a level of selfishness in it and self-righteousness. And, um, you know, it's like in order to lose oneself, 
one has to be in love. So he says, apart from lovers, all I see is self-righteous hypocrisy. The Qur'an directs the Prophet ﷺ to give love as the reason and reward for following him. Say, say if you love God, then follow me and God will love you. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبِبَكُمُ اللَّهِ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ Say if you, this is the verse, 331. Love is the truest and most sincere motivation for any action. It is what moves our souls in one direction instead of another. Love always attaches itself to beauty of one kind or another. It's going to be connected to some sort of beauty. When mosques and places of learning are beautiful, we are drawn to them. When speech is beautiful, we are drawn to it. Beauty inspires love, and love moves our souls. This is true for supra-sensible divine beauty, which the Islamic arts try to make sensible. But unfortunately, it is also true for the gaudy, shallow beauty, quote-unquote, of shopping malls, shopping malls, skyscrapers, and the adornments of this world, zinatun hayat dunya which are really a parody or a shadow of true beauty. This begs the question of the difference between the liberating beauty of Islamic art and the distracting, hypnotizing beauty, quote-unquote, of the dunya. How can one discern between the two, and why is it important to do so? This is a really good question, right? So part of why we're drawn to these things that are so so-called beautiful is because... They come from the true source, which is actual beauty. Not the things themselves, but the... I'm trying to think of an example, like... Let me give you a really profane example. (laughs) So say you really love cheeseburgers. You know, you just love cheeseburgers. Of course, they're halal, they're cheeses, good cheese, so on and so forth. But they're, you just really love your cheeseburgers. And you see this cheeseburger, and it looks really good. It doesn't exactly look like the one you, you, you really love and know. But, you know, it looks all right. So you have it, and it's good, and you appreciate it. And because there's no other cheeseburger around, you know, it's the one. But you've seen this other cheeseburger in your dream. That like it was a real cheeseburger, but it was a different level of cheeseburger. Like so there's a reflection of it in a sense. And so we're drawn to it because we're we're not meant to be drawn to it, we're meant to be drawn to what's beyond it. But in our heedlessness and our distance from that which was beyond it, we got caught up in it. The shopping malls, beauty, so on and so forth. So how do we distinguish between them? In order to distinguish Islamic art from other forms of art, we must define and demarcate Islamic art. Although Western art historians were slow to recognize the unity of the Islamic arts in cultural regions as different as West Africa and Central Asia, scholars such as Sayyid Hussein Nasr and Titus Burkhart have compellingly made the case for a universal Islamic approach to the arts that manifests itself in different variations in different local contexts. So... Just like the art has a multiplicity, the particular piece of art 
as a multiplicity that draws towards the unity. The various types of art that are in these various areas of Islamic civilizations, they also have a unity in their multiplicity. Um, <coughs> in doing so, these scholars have, help, have helpfully distinguished Islamic art from Muslim religious art and from art made by Muslims. Very, very different things. Okay, very, very different things. Sit with that for a second. They distinguished Islamic art from Muslim religious art and from art made by Muslims. Okay? I would think about this kind of like in terms of music. A lot of times, you know, if you're not into music, forget it. But the point is, there's music sometimes that's just music made by a Muslim. And you're like, okay, cool, but that doesn't make it Islamic music, quote-unquote. Or it's made more for like some sort of religious end, but it's not really like an art form of music, really. It's just made for kind of like when people do, um, um, what are those called, covers? Like they do a cover of a song and they make it. Um, it's more of like a Muslim religious art than it is truly Islamic art. To be truly Islamic art, it would have to be like an individual product that represents this ethos or, or contribution that represents this ethos and so on. Uh, the form and content of traditional Islamic art springs directly from the Quranic revelation and diffuses the perfume of the Muhammadan blessing and Barakah and Muhammadiyah. The Islamic arts incorporated the techniques and methods of Roman, West African, Byzantine, Sassanid, Central Asian, and Chinese artists to give birth to a new art depicting the new religion's vision of reality. The true source of Islamic art is the Islamic revelation, not its historical precedents or influences. This singular origin accounts for its remarkable unity across time and space. Art made by Muslims or even art made in Muslim societies is not necessarily Islamic art. This could be applied to many other things. Um, Muslim organizations communities, projects, business structures, a lot of things can be made by Muslims. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll critique something like, but Muslims made it. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with it? And like, that's not, that's not the defining question. Like, it, you know, just because a Muslim made it doesn't mean necessarily anything in and of itself. It doesn't like, it, it a Muslim can make something horrible doesn't have anything to do with it a non-muslim can make something great but it, it probably won't hit like the same exact kind of like thing that we're talking about when it's islamic art so and so or whatever else it might be the late iraqi british architect zaha hadid designed many famous buildings but none are examples of islamic architecture Conversely, students of all faiths at the Prince's School of Traditional Arts in London produce works of traditional Islamic calligraphy, illumination, and geometric design. It is the form of the art, shaped by revelation and not the identity of the artist, that makes a work distinctly, distinctively Islamic. It is the form of the art, shaped by revelation and not the identity of the artist, that makes a work distinctively Islamic. Religious art, meanwhile, includes items of religious significance or those used for religious purposes. 
Not all religious art is Islamic art, while much of Islamic art is religious art, even if not obviously so. Syrian wood inlay cabinets and tables may be used to hold alcohol, but their geometric patterns portray some of the loftiest realities of Islamic metaphysics and cosmology. Posters of Mecca and Medina or mass-produced prayer carpets emblazoned with the Kaaba are religious art but not Islamic art, despite the sacred architecture of the sites they depict. The recitation of the Qur'an in traditional maqams and even the singing of inspired poetry in these modes and rhythms are both Islamic and religious art, whereas Islamic parodies of Justin Bieber songs and the popular auto-tuned a cappella qasidas and four-part harmony may be religious, but Islamic or sacred they certainly are not. So it's distinguishing here, and it's important to make those distinctions. While difficult to, to define in concrete formal terms, Islamic art is recognized easily, especially by those familiar with other dimensions of the Islamic tradition. Whether visual or sonoral, the Islamic arts project projects unity, tawheed, which manifests as symmetry, harmony, and rhythm, the imprint of unity on multiplicity. The Islamic arts do not mimic or imitate the outward forms of things, but present their inner archetypal realities. Hence the emphasis on number, geometry, and letters, calligraphy, which are the basic building blocks of space, time, and language. In traditional calligraphy, geomet geometric ratios govern even the shapes and sizes of the letters, which gives the lettering art its remarkable harmony, which we kind of mentioned already. Islam the Islamic arts also bear the imprint of the Qur'an in terms of its meanings, ma'ani, and structures, mabani. Like many sacred texts, many of the surahs and verses of the Qur'an have a... Uh, I don't know how to say that. Have a... Chiastic or ring structure. In any case, they have a ring structure. Um, the Qur'an has that. Has this like... Oftentimes it'll start in one place and it'll end in one place. And it'll... Second in one place and it'll second to last in one place and third in one place and third to last in one place And then in the middle there'll be like a central point Someone had a I think someone made a I think one of the people locally made a A website that shows that Like for certain surahs they're still working on it It'll show how the beginning of the surah and the end of the surah are in line So it creates like a circle right There's a circle to it A ring to it Ring structure. That is the final section mirrors the first. Oh, okay. That is the final section mirrors the first, the penultimate section mirrors the second, and so on until the center, which contains the main theme or message. This symmetric, polycentric structure of overlapping patterns is clearly reflected in the geometric patterns of illumination that adorn Quranic manuscripts, the tessellations that adorn mosques, madrasas, and homes where its verses are chanted and even the structure of the musical maqams in which it is recited. So all of this is going back to... Uh, yeah, I think that's the one. All of this is going back to um, that structure. The geometry goes back to that structure. This. Uh, let me read it first. Let's see. So it's an ikhlas masanan. See how they did it. Say the truth is that Allah is one. Is and then I'll break it down. It's kind of cool. MashaAllah. Um, 
So that is being reflected in the Quran, that is being reflected in the geography, that is being reflected in the calligraphy. Everything's functioning on the same frequency. And that same frequency is giving a kind of um, synergy, or not synergy, but harmony that leads us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Islamic arts also bear the imprint of the Qur'an in terms of its meanings, ma'ani and structures, mabani. Like many sacred texts, I already said that. Okay. And even the structure of the musical maqams in which it is recited. Islamic art is founded on the interconnected sacred sciences of mathematics, geometry, music, and cosmology. Not so different from the medieval Christian notion of art without science is nothing. All of these sciences connect the multiplicity of creation to the unity of the Creator and engage the qualitative symbolic aspects of multiplicity as well as its quantitative dimensions. Aristotle divided philosophy into three parts, physics, mathematics, and theology, ilahiyat. Physics addresses the natural or material world and theology the divine, while mathematics and the associated sciences of geometry and music, which are numbers in space and time, which is really amazing how they broke that down. In the visual and sonoral domains, respectively, deals with the intermediate archetypal imaginal realm, the barzakh between the divine and the terrestrial. These sciences of the intermediate realm allow the Islamic arts to serve as a ladder from the terrestrial to the celestial, from the sensory to the spiritual. They also have their foundation in Islamic metaphysics and spirituality, which give the artist direct access to the spiritual realities and truths represented in their art. That's just amazing. That's an amazing paragraph. I'm trying to catch my breath from it. It's a really remarkable paragraph. Uh, mathematics and the associated sciences of geometry and music, which are numbers in space, geometry, and time, in the visual and sonoral domains, respectively. Those are the link. Those are the link. So, so much of the art then is geometry and music. Think about it. Islamic art. So much of it is geometry and music. Is that haphazard? It's not haphazard. It's meant to provide the bridge that moves from the terrestrial to the celestial, the sensory to the, sensory to the spiritual. Subhanallah. Plato describes beauty as the splendor of the true, the inability to discern between beauty and ugliness, therefore corresponds to and accompanies the inability to discern between the true and the false. Uh, there's a question, can the same, same be said for metered poetry? Uh, probably, perhaps. Probably something to that. I think there's an element of that also that's true about Tajweed. Tajweed is really interesting. Um, let me come back to Tajweed. Let me finish the paragraph and come back to Tajweed. Harmonious and geometric true beauty is timeless and reflects the beauty of the unseen, leading to tranquility and the remembrance of God. 
False beauty, like ugliness, is fleeting, discordant, and unbalanced, reflecting the chaos and multiplicity of the lower world and the lower levels of the human psyche, which leads to imbalance, dispersion, and heedlessness. It brings out the opaque aspect of creation that hides or veils the divine, whereas true beauty brings out the transparent or reflective aspect of things that makes them legible as signs of God. Like, isn't it interesting that this whole idea of free verse poetry and stuff, like, didn't really exist? In the Muslim civilization, at least, that's a totally modern thing. It's very interesting. Like, did they understand something, maybe, to, like, the structure of the poetry and why that matters? Even in the English-speaking world, yeah. It's very fascinating. Like these people were steeped in philosophy, they were steeped in science and the arts and all this kind of stuff, but they never thought like that never was something that picked up steam. Real poetry has meter, yeah. I'll die. <laughs> Real poetry has meter. It does. And there's something to that if it's going to go deeper. It's going to be connected to something deeper. It has to have some sort of structure to it. Tajweed, what's really interesting about Tajweed is and like you have to do it with someone who really knows it. Okay, like I'm going to be a little bit of a stickler right now. Um, Tajweed is a really interesting thing because to really learn it properly, you have to study it with someone who's really learned it properly, and that means they've gone through a lot to get there. They've gone through a lot to get there. Like thousands and thousands of repetitions, you know. And there are rules to tajweed. There is there and and you can't and even though different qira'at might have slightly different rules, you can't interchange them. Like if you're using one, you use that one. If you're using the other one, you use that other one. And there's a logic to it. And when you try to learn tajweed properly from people who really know it, or even you listen to them recite and you've learned a little bit, you realize that it's different. Like it's not... I don't know how to I don't know how to explain it. The frequency is different. I think like this idea of frequency and like when something becomes clear versus when it has static. I feel like th maybe that's a good example. When you're trying to pick up the channel, the channel has a bunch of frequency, but you can hear it a little bit, and then the frequency goes away, goes away, goes away, and then I mean not the frequency, the static goes away, goes away, goes away until you get the signal just right and it becomes crystal clear. And you're like, whoa, that's something else that I'm hearing right now. You know, that's what Tajweed is like when it's actually correct. And like the reason why I'm kind of emphasizing this a little bit is because most people don't recite that way. I'll just put it this way. Most people don't recite that way. Myself included. I'm, 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 I'm recently re-engaged with this journey. But uh, most people don't recite that way. But when you hear it that way, and you recite it that way, it feels different. I don't know how to explain it, but it's just different.
Okay, I think this is a good place to stop in terms of the reading. Where was it? It was the two streams of Islamic art. Two streams of Islamic art. Okay, so that's, I think, a good place to come next time. Um, there's a question. So our notion of beauty comes from being confined to a system or to rules or to structure. But now we live in a postmodern world that deconstructs all of the aforementioned. How do we confront this reality? With honor and dignity. <laughs> and we die on this hill. <laughs> as, as you said, you know, how do we confront this reality? Um... I feel that what is true, what is truly true is still truly true. And despite all of the delusions or deconstruction, deconstructions, the true is still true. And, um, you know, I always think of that scene in uh, the Malcolm X movie when Malcolm is talking to Elijah Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad pours the water for him and then he puts some ink in it and he, he says if they're thirsty they'll drink this but if you put you know, like if you put this next to it which is the actual water they'll always take that and um, I think that inevitably people are thirsty because it's part of our nature to yearn for that beauty but, and so, we're, we're going to be searching, we're going to be looking, and we might actually end up in some of the wrong places at times because we don't see what's actually true and beautiful for any number of reasons. But I think that the responsibility of, of the believer is to understand and believe this idea of what is actually true and actually beautiful, and to hold that up as much as they can. And as they hold it up, inshallah, some people will will see and recognize that for what it is, inshallah. Allahu alam. alam. If there's any other comments or questions or anything that anyone would like to contribute, you're more than welcome to. Um, while we're all here together. And if not, then I would suggest, if you can, during the week, to um, kind of like read over this section again. I think it might um, it might be helpful to to reread it, to take a glance at it again, and to really kind of sit with it a little bit. And then hopefully next week when we come back, uh, it will be even more clear and even more true and there'll be even more connection to it inshallah i really like this article yeah it's amazing it's really really amazing it's gonna get better inshallah it gets even better now we're, we're just warming up inshallah next week it will be even better okay
Barakulafikum, subhanakulamu, hamdignasharwana, ilaha illa ant, nastaw firuka wana tubu ilaik. Barakulamu fikum, may Allah accept from everyone, may Allah keep everyone safe, be safe. It's holiday season. Uh, I'm not saying don't see anyone, but be safe. Try to do it in the best way and most responsible way that you can. And Allah bring us out of this fitna soon. We were, we've been spending the last couple of days watching videos, old videos of the Majlis, the Umrah videos and the Mecca videos and like Mecca and Medina videos, the 2019 summary videos. And uh, subhanAllah, we had some really beautiful times in that little place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us more and bring them back to us. Allow us to benefit from one another's company, inshaAllah. Ameen. Assalamu alaikum. Inshallah, we'll see you soon. Take good care. All right. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.